Om Magyana Timirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chakshurun Militam Yena Tasmei Sri Gurave Namaha Welcome. Thank you for hosting me here, Hari Bhakti and Scott, and other friends here in Portland, and thank you all for for coming. Welcome, come in, and listening. So I spoke yesterday evening on faith, and tonight I'll speak a little bit about compassion. And uh, both of these in, in, in the context of yoga and mysticism, which we're all familiar with here to one extent or another. And for starting point and point of reference, I'm going to turn to Bhagavad Gita, which most of you are probably familiar with. And um, the sixth chapter of the Gita is particularly interesting perhaps to yoga teachers, in that it, uh, although every chapter of the Gita is, is a yoga or a, a means or a discipline and entitled such, yoga of such, yoga of this, yoga of that, and so forth, this sixth chapter is called Dhyan Yoga. Dhyan means meditation. So the, the text of the sixth chapter seems to relate more directly, if you will, to the yoga practice and discipline that that most people are familiar with, or the way I would say that most people uh, immediately think about when they think about yoga, if it isn't health or, or improved sex life or what, something on a lower level like that. <laughs> um, so, mystic kind of yoga, and yoga that uh, that leads to stilling of the mind and uh, all the possibilities that lie uh, therein. So the sixth chapter, dealing as it does more uh, directly with yoga disciplines of asana, how to sit, how not to sit, and and uh, how to regulate oneself in terms of eating and sleeping and recreation too. There's a place for that also. Our practice, sometimes we meet the wall of our conditioning and it can't seem to break through and go any further. And uh, at such times we're advised to step back and take a break, so to speak, <laughs> that we might have better capacity to break through on sitting again. So all these things are discussed in this chapter. And um, it's leading to a certain point chapter. The, the Gita is divided into, well, it covers 18 chapters, and there are three natural divisions of the text, six chapters, six chapters, and six chapters. So this sixth chapter of the first division is leading to the central section of the Gita, which is overtly concerned with bhakti, with devotion, kind of the heart of uh, yoga, if you will. And um, it's a more theological section of the Gita also, the middle um, six chapters. And um, as I say, as this chapter starts to wind down, speaker, Sri Krishna is kind of moving in that direction where he's going to speak more directly about himself. 
and Krishna, well, just if we might for a moment, since we've been singing about him here for for a few minutes, um, I suppose would best be described or somewhat described as kind of the the heart of of the uh, Indian Hindu pantheon of gods and goddesses. You know, you have the wisdom of the Buddha and to cross cultures we have the sacrificing heart of Christ and and so forth, um, different manifestations of divinity. And Krishna's like the like the heartbeat of the absolute kind of wants to say to us that the absolute has a heartbeat, <laughs> just like we do. And um, it, it beats for for love. And we kind of live for love. We can't live without it. We cannot rest until we found it. And when we find it, we start moving again in another way, based on that love. It moves us. It's, you know, ups and downs, like a roller coaster, but we can't get off. Something like that. So there's a kind of a movement that um, of the dissatisfied, and there's a movement of the satisfied also. So in in in, uh, in Vedantic terms, kind of the, the reasoning of the sacred traditions of India, Hinduism that is, Vedanta. The movement out of dissatisfaction could be termed karma, movement under law, under obligation, under out of lack of fulfillment, a perceived um, lacking in oneself, owing to identifying with something other than what we really are. It cannot, it kind of a well, temporary manifestation of various elemental constituents of matter, we being consciousness, which animates matter. It's what makes matter, matter. That's us. <laughs> if it weren't for consciousness, then uh, matter wouldn't matter. Who would know about it? Who would care? We are the knowers, potentially. <laughs> But under the influence of matter, we might not know so much, hmm? even about matter. <laughs> and that matters. <laughs> so, so, because then we won't know about ourselves, hmm? who are under the influence of matter, so to speak, and who can come out from underneath that, that blanket of ignorance and misconception that makes it difficult for us to... Um, care about even ourselves than what to speak of one another. So, so the movement under this kind of misconception, a misperceived sense of, of what we are, identifying with that which we animate rather than with ourselves as the animator. Something like if you if you watch television too long then it's a problem. Someone can become like a, a couch potato and just watch the television and someone, his wife has to come and say, come on, you've got a life. Get up from there. Turn that off. Even though he may have turned the television on and given it life, thereby being the viewer himself, the television has taken over his life or her life, as may be the case. Uh, so... The machine, the show, the animation 
of the world is fascinating and, and uh, attractive in a sense and, and uh, distracting um, often to, to a large extent from the animator, the animating uh, ingredient that makes the thing go around. And that, I want to say, in a sense, is, is, is us in as much as we are consciousness, but I want to say a little something more about that in speaking for a few minutes, as I am, as a preface, if you will, about Krishna. We are consciousness, not matter, and at the same time there's kind of a consciousness of consciousness. In other words, we be, but there's something we be for. We have a... there's, there's a... Being is uh, is uh, it's a way of describing us, but um, I don't think it, it it completely describes us. We, in other words, we exist. Matter, in all of its forms, is here today and gone tomorrow. In that sense, it doesn't exist, in an enduring sense. And when we want enduring life, and enduring happiness, we would do ourselves well not to pursue it in relation to things that don't endure. This is uncommon sense, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And it's largely our predicament that we do pursue an enduring life and a meaningful life and a happy life and a love life, but in relation to things that don't endure and, um, and to that extent, in the least, don't have the capacity to, to reciprocate in return and to the extent to which we... We seek reciprocal dealings that love constitutes. So I want to say that what we are, we be, we exist, as opposed to things that don't exist in an enduring sense. But we be or we, we exist with a kind of a, a purpose, an aim. It's a purposeless purpose. It's uh, love knows no reason. So I want to say we exist for love, for joy, for honor. And joy, happiness comes in reciprocal dealings that are such that, that the, the difference between us while existing seems to disappear at the same time. Hmm? If you and I are in love, then you and I become we. There's still you and there's still I, but we are unified in a dynamic way. So I think this is what we're looking for in life, this kind of, uh, well, we, we live for love, what I want to say. And so, ultimate reality that we don't quite always have the full picture of has been described by this word Krishna, by some mystics. And, and the, the idea is that this particular manifestation, if you will, or uh, symbolic, I don't mean in, a, I mean in a more profound way, perhaps symbolic than we might think of it, but the, the world above or the world within, so to speak, speaks to us in a, in a symbolic kind of a language. Sometimes it comes to us in a in a in a language that's not unreasonable. But it it, it it's apparent that it that it speaks from beyond outside of the limits of reason. It uses different ways to communicate with us because reason fails to reach it and and and, and grasp it and accommodate it entirely. We, we in this world, then we, we hopefully speak the language of logic more than English or French or Hindi or Spanish. Uh, that may be the case, and uh, you know then we can gather and have these types of 
of discussions, but logic, reason, is is a very. Um, I mean, it's limited. It's <laughs> it it uh, it's it's largely uh, uh, unto itself. It's circular. Ultimately, you can reason about anything round and round and round. <laughs> so many things. Artarko, apatishtana, by tarko, by argument, by logic, one gets nowhere. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you're going somewhere. <laughs> so we are not, I want to say, humans, merely because we are reasonable, which is often asserted that uh, we are reasonable, rational animals. I, I, we are, that's true, hopefully. But, um, but there's something else about us and all living beings, but about us in particular, because us means living beings who are in a human form of life. There are obviously other forms of life, and some of them are less complex than us. That might be good. <laughs> but uh, but uh, we are more complex in another sense, in that we have reasoning capacity, and we can ask questions like why. They, they press on us, and uh, especially in our youth. And uh, we can ignore them and get old <laughs> and think they were just a childhood preoccupation. But some people pursue that their whole life, the why of things rather than the how of things. And um, so we're different than, than the less complex species of life and that we have this... Co- kind of developed capacity for reasoning, but I want to say there's something more about us. We as human beings, let's say individual units of consciousness in the human dress, have come to a point in the world, in in the world of being, of being able to care and, and do something voluntary. In other words, we have the capacity to love, not only to reason, it's just reason is is developed, but loving is just budding, and it and we have the capacity to come to the full uh, measure of what is love in human form of life. And what I mean by that, very simply, is that again we have the capacity to do something voluntarily. Less complex species of life are as complete in a sense as as we are if we look beyond the bodily restrictions. But whatever type of bodily restriction we may have or limitation we may have by the, as a result of karma, the, the, the fruit of the seeds that we, we've sown, it determines to one extent or another our, our movements. Dogs bark and you know cows meow or cats meow. Cows meow, cows, <laughs> cows, cows moo, but, um, but they all do, say, let's say in the, in, in the world of mammals, as it may be, they are all. Uh, uh, they don't have the same capacity we do to to do something voluntarily. To say you oh, you first. You know we've got a herd of cows at my both of our monasteries, but when it's food time, you know that it's <laughs> 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 dinner time. It's whoever gets there first. It's charming too, but um, they're cows. <laughs> so the idea is that that. In human life, this sense of self that, w- that we are unit of consciousness is starting to blossom. It's starting to develop. It's it has more capacity for it to come out. There's more freedom for the embodied in human embodiment than there is in 
other forms of life, more freedom, freedom to have this kind of discussion, freedom to come here or not come here, freedom to go down, freedom to go up, if you like. The opportunity to go up is there, and the opportunity to go way down on the karmic ladder is also there, depending how we, we deal with the freedom, so to speak, that this form of life affords us. And I think that above and beyond everything else, it affords us the the opportunity to do something voluntarily. And that it means to, to, to sacrifice, to give, and give consciously and knowingly. And that, that this is what progressive life is really about. This is how we progress and grow, by taking the self, the sense of self contracts. And we are all on the take to one extent or another. And by giving the sense of self expands. It's not that we get bigger or smaller like that, but a sense of what we are. In a very simple sense, you, you're all good-hearted people and philanthropically disposed to one extent or another, and you're thinking beyond your, your yourself and your family and your community and maybe world-conscious and uh, politically conscious and Obama-conscious. <laughs> Whatever economic conscious and th- thinking of your nation or of your of your planet or others may think beyond beyond that and so forth, and that that thinking outside of yourself or beyond your immediate sensual needs makes you a bigger person, right? You you grow. You you've you've identified in a with a, you know, with a larger sense of of self. And you've bridged a gap between yourself and others, your culture and other cultures, and so forth, and and so on. So this is this is what human life affords us the opportunity to do. It's very far out time to live as a human. We're living in, in human time, all of us here tonight. So it's, it's extraordinary kind of opportunity. And the wonderful thing is that this opportunity, which is unique in a sense to human society. It's met with facil- something that can facilitate that 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 growth in, in in such a way that it can reach its its optimum. What I mean by that is something like this: in, in every form of life, there are necessities, and we if we look at nature, we find that built into nature, in the very construction, if you will, the art of that form of life. There's a, the, the means to acquire what the necessities are. Every species, let's say, has a need to eat, to sleep, to mate, and to protect themselves. Basic needs. And every species has these, and every species has the means to do that. The skunk has his tail to protect himself, and, and uh, you know, none of them are confused about how to mate, it's pretty well worked out there. Uh, how to sleep, what to eat, unless we get in the way and you know feed the squirrels in the park, things that they're not, <laughs> not good for them, uh, create an imbalance in the environment. That's the misuse of our freedom, the kind of thing I was talking about. So in the, I want to say that all these forms of life, it's, there's, it's all worked out. With the form of life comes the, the necessity to meet the, the, the means to meet the basic necessities. And the necessity of why hasn't yet arisen 
for those entities who have not yet arrived at human form of life. It hasn't yet arisen. It, it will arise. Why it's there now, and that's a whole other long story. It's very difficult to, to um, disentangle the web of karma. But as it said in poetry, oh, what a web we weave when at first we deceive. So we're involved in that too, kind of karmic web of self-deception. It's pretty entangling. But uh, suffice to say, as, as, as I mentioned, that in, in human form of life, the necessities of lower form of or lesser, less developed, less complex forms of life, we have those two. We have the need to eat, sleep, mate, and defend. The question is why we are so confused about how to eat, sleep, mate, and defend <laughs> when we are more developed species. And, and the answer is because we have a need that we ignore or we don't put in the front, so to speak, and that is a need to know why and the need to love. This is, should be in the forefront of our human consciousness. In fact, as I said earlier, it's really what differentiates us from the animal species. The intellect, and the, and the good intellect, to think, I have a capacity to give. Intellect can, can, be, can be helpful if we, if we use it properly. Unto itself alone, it's insufficient, but it can be useful or it can be abused, as I've said. So we have this need. This need has, doesn't arise anywhere near to the same extent in other forms of life. It's a huge need for us. And what I want to say is that just as the need for the other forms of life are met within nature, so the need for human life to pursue this to its full measure, love, giving and and the getting that that's really all about or that just disappears because one is so fulfilled in the giving itself everyone needs to get so to speak but the secret is that the getting is the giving and that sounds good so you give to get and then if you really give then you really get in the getting in the giving itself in the giving that is the living Giving, you should give to live. Now we we have to kill to live. To live in terms of this material sense of self, we have to take. But we are more than this material sense of self, and that can be realized by giving. So, what is it then that we are we have in human form of life that comes to us to facilitate to help us pursue the thing that we really need? which, if pursuing those other needs, eating, sleeping, mating, they'll all fall into place. They'll all fall into place in that they'll all be arranged around fulfilling the primary need and the primary opportunity that human life affords us. When we forget about that, then we'd obviously we'd be confused because we're trying to make everything out of eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. We'd, better, we'd be better off in another form of life we would be content with that. We are not content with that. But without good company, perhaps, to think differently and come to a sense of, of like what we're talking about, what is the facility of human life offers us and so forth, then um, we're left in human dress to pursue 
you know, kind of an animal life, and it's not very fulfilling. Even though we could eat a mountain, sleep, you know, a week, <laughs> whatever else uh, might be there. So, and we, and all these things become problematic. Then our eating, we become obese, and then we become, uh, and there may be um, other problems that come. Defense is a big one. We might blow ourselves up if it's possible. So, but when, as I say, when this primary necessity is put in the center, then how to eat, sleep, made and defend in relation to what I'm really doing, what I'm really about, what, what my life really affords me, then it all makes sense very easy. Hmm? Very simple. No, you don't need any, any problems are solved. Hmm? So what is it then that we have in human form of life that that is kind of built into the human form of life, so to speak, to facilitate our pursuing this. What I want to say, that is, is kind of a reach, if you will, from beyond nature to us. I call that uh, like revelation. That if there is something beyond mind, beyond intellect, and indeed it's us, or we're part of something beyond the limits of intellect, but to speak of senses and the call of the wild and so forth, if there is such a thing, then it has it has life too. You understand? It's alive. It's not a dead thing that we will go and arrest in the prison of our mind, like we do every other object. We go to school, we gather knowledge, for example. We take that knowledge, we put it in our files, and we use that for our own small purposes. To eat, sleep, mate, defend, in one form or another. So that's a certain kind of knowledge, the how knowledge, how to. But the real why knowledge, that if it's perfect knowledge, that can make that can perfectly inform our actions, by which we can become perfectly happy and full, and thereby, or to that extent, be a giver, as you have to have to give, right? Compassion is, is really arising out of at least some measure of fullness in relation to something that's empty. And you've been empty. You've run on empty before. So the yogin thinks, I've been there before. Naturally, he or she has some compassion. Compassion is kind of an interesting combination of well, it's, it's happiness and distress, two polar opposites harmonized, which is really at the heart of spirituality is to, to rise above the polar opposites of happiness, of ha- happiness, sadness, hot, cold, good, bad. What I mean by that is ha- compassion is a happy sadness. <laughs> it's a happy sadness. You're happy in yourself. But you feel sad for others who have not yet attained such. And of course it plays itself out on different levels even in terms of material fulfillment you may have, and there may be a have-nots, have so you may feel compassionate, altruistic for them and so forth. And on a higher level, in terms of real, actual fulfillment, because the rich are suffering perhaps more than the poor, the haves may be worse off than the have-nots in terms of, of real happiness. Hmm? So, 
real fulfillment, self-satisfaction, which 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 yoga is about, of course. And this kind of fulfillment, um, well, and satisfaction, happiness, will cause us naturally to feel sad at the same time for those who have have not. So, so this, if there is, and there is something, and it's us, lies beyond the limits of mind and reasoning, something that we are part of, a bigger picture than what meets the eye, than what we can gather with the senses or just with our reasoning power to hash things over one, twist them one way or another way. If there's something beyond, then, in other words, if there's a, this is a realm of imperfect knowledge, material knowledge. I can take that knowledge, I can capture it, and I can use it for my purposes. But there's a kind of knowledge that has a purpose of its own. It has an agenda. We have an agenda, materially speaking, and we go and get knowledge to facilitate it. Uh, that are called imperfect knowledge because however much you facilitate your material life, it'll be imperfect. It won't endure. Right? So, if there's any perfection, which we all sense there is, everyone, you know, some people say, Swami, there is no perfect knowledge. And so they're fair to think like that. They can think like that. You think there's perfect knowledge. I don't think there is any perfect knowledge. But I also would say, I don't think there's anyone that doesn't pursue perfect knowledge (laughs) or perfect happiness. I think everyone pursues perfect happiness. That means they pursue a kind of knowledge, because knowledge informs our actions. So who's crazy? Those who say there is no perfect knowledge, but pursue it anyway? (laughs) Or those who say there is perfect knowledge and pursue it, even though they may not have it or it may seem distant. After all, it's perfect. It's distant. It's distant, but we can't stay away from it. It's distant, but close to us, because we have the potential for that. What we have, what we are, must be determined by our potential, right? Like I have an ashram in a monastery in Costa Rica, so it's in Central America, in Nicaragua, you know, it's pretty peaceful now, but it didn't always used to be. And Guatemala is not so peaceful right now. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit um, turbulent politically in that area sometimes. Costa Rica has got no army, and, uh, you know, they have the real peace-loving uh, people in many respects and and so on. It's surrounded by, especially in the past, with bordering Nicaragua, a real kind of a thing in a dangerous position, but it's not the best example, perhaps. But if you drew back and looked at Costa Rica in relation to the United States, because it has an economic relationship with the United States, then you see, well, because it's associated with the United States, Nicaragua won't dare go across the border. So, in other words, to evaluate a thing accurately, we have to see it in terms of its potential, its association, its connections, and so forth. If I ask you, hello, what's your name? Who's your father? Or what country are you from? I get some, oh, well, okay. (laughs) 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 Nice to meet you. (laughs) That may be the case. So, um, in many respects, we're a product of our environment, our associations, and, uh, and so forth. So... If there's perfect knowledge, then there has to be a perfect means to attain it. And imperfect means will not bring us perfect knowledge. So, here's the dilemma. Let us look at ourselves as finite beings, and we want to approach the infinite. We live within a kind of a finite conception of life. 
That's what infinite things don't fit between our ears. Something that has no end and no beginning. You can't think about it. That's why we talk about it. So you might stop thinking for a while <laughs> and, and feel yourself. So instead of the, just the oppression of the mind and its uh, limitations it places upon us. It holds us down from being what we sense we could be. I said human life earlier is such a great opportunity. It's kind of a rising above matter, kind of peeking our head above limitations of matter. And that's why in human life we think, why can't I fly in the sky like birds? Why can't I dive in the sea deep like the, like the fishes? And so forth. And we try to. We create submarines and spacecrafts. Because we have this sense we could do anything. And we can. The soul is not limited. The self is not limited by by such. And it's, it's the self that's coming out, so it senses this. Oh, but it kind of goes about it in the wrong way. Yoga is the right way to go about that, all that, to pursue all that we could be. And yoga comes from up to down. In other words, take the Gita, for example, and Krishna is speaking the Gita. And Krishna, as I said, is this kind of like heartbeat of, of the Absolute. And, um, and I wanted to say reality has a heartbeat, has life. It's alive. It's not a dead thing. There's knowledge that we can collect and use for our dead or dying purposes. And there's knowledge that can give us life. There's knowledge that we can put on our material agenda. And there's knowledge on whose agenda we are. You see, these kind of sessions are about that kind of knowledge. Because you come enough, you come with, we may come with one, I'll come, gather something, use it for my purpose. But if you listen long enough, you might think, you might stay here. This thing has a purpose for me of its own. It has an agenda. I'm on the agenda. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little scary, but it's comforting too. Because that agenda... It's a loving agenda. It's affectionate agenda. It's a, it's a compassionate agenda. It's it's perfect knowledge, reaching out to us. The dilemma is, as I said, if we're finite, and our goal is to know the fine infinite, how will it be possible? Mathematically, the finite cannot know, or what I mean by know is control, the infinite. So what will we do? How will the finite know the infinite? There's an answer. The answer is if the finite, if the infinite chooses, then out of its infinite capacity, such things can happen. We can go beyond the limitations of reason. Impossible doesn't exist in the dictionary in that realm. That's a word from this realm. Measurement, that, that maya, you know the Sanskrit word maya, it means illusion, but it also means to measure. So it's an illusion. You're, you're an illusion to try to measure or to bring within your grasp the fist of your intellect, the whole affair, and know it. But it can be known if it wants to be known. Hmm? And so perfect means for knowing or arriving at perfect knowledge is to avail ourselves of the outreach of the Absolute, so to speak. So Krishna is a particular outreach, if you will, of the Absolute. It happens to be like the whole heartbeat of the whole the whole thing, the love life of that, um, of Brahman, hmm? of the great, that's a whole story in, in, in itself. But the point is that if we want to know and know perfectly, 
and thereby be happy and fully happy, and to that extent then have the capacity to really care about others and bridge the gap between ourselves and them, we have to take advantage of this um, opportunity or facility that comes with human life to answer the question of why I exist, what is my purpose. There's an outreach from above to below. This is what things like the Gita are about and or the, um, the experience of the mystics. They're, they're going in a non, uh, not in an irrational way, but in a trans-rational way of, of knowing. They're going within. It's kind of a yogic experience. It's not a, well, you know, you do yoga. So it's not, a, it's a dip, even from, an, from a physical exercise point of view, it's, it's very different, isn't it? It's not kind of aggressive. It's kind of, you achieve the same, you know, even better physique or health or whatnot, but by going kind of in a backwards way, you, you kind of like meet the measure of resistance and uh, it's, it's very gentle and sattvic and uh, it's a whole different approach to uh, than say calisthenics or weightlifting or something like that, to, to bodybuilding if people want to use it for that. It's a whole different mentality. It's a kind of, re- of a reverse, kind of putting yourself in reverse, but, but going forward as a result of it. You know, they say in the material world, you'll get ahead by stepping on other people's heads. We think that by having your head stepped on by the right people, you will go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> We're always putting our heads on the ground, you know, in the yoga world. <laughs> somebody important, somebody of consequence, spiritually speaking, might have walked there. And Anyway, so... You know, the meek, the humble will inherit the earth, something like that. This is the idea. So there's a kind of a... Um, if, there's a if there's a center, and there is, then it's pushing and generating. If there's a generating source of life, then it's aggressive, in a sense. It's asserting itself. Now, if we are not the generating source, but we assert ourselves then it's like one huge positive magnet and one tiny positive magnet. What's going to happen if you bring those, try to put those two together? The tiny magnet will go <laughs> far in the opposite direction. So we have to convert ourselves to kind of a negative polarity, and I mean that in a positive sense. <laughs> Yoga is pretty confusing stuff. <laughs> Uh, it's got to get break down these mental constructs and, uh, and go you know, be put, drawn in naturally. There's a pusher, there's an assertor. There's a nice thing that's said about Krishna, Nam, the name of Krishna. Uh, there were two policemen in India, and they had they were having a discussion, and one fellow said, "You know, it's it's really a pity that our God, Krishna, is the thief." You may know about Krishna and his leela and stealing butter and 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 uh, mischievous that he's portrayed. And there's a whole reason for all this and whatnot. But anyway, the fellow said, "It's it's uh, it's a pity that our it's a placement, a pity that our God is a thief. It's we're trying to enforce the law, and our God's a, you know is a bit of a rascal and uh, and doesn't respect the propriety of others. And so, so should he? That's another thing." You know? who owns everything and steals, we call that play. 
Hmm? <laughs> That's just play. Hmm? There's no real. There's no. There's nothing criminal about that. Hmm? That's charming, in fact. <laughs> That's attractive. <laughs> so to to know him on that, know the absolute on that level, making making itself available of course, on kind of intimate terms. This is the idea of Krishna opening the absolute opening its heart to us. Love is what we're after, and love in an absolute sense. And love is measure is determined by the degree of intimacy. So Krishna is the, is the face of divinity that affords us the most intimacy, most inviting. I don't mean to put any other face down. They're all different faces of Him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so He says, as people approach, I reciprocate accordingly whatever you want. But if you really want, if you think about it, and you say, I really want love. And with Krishna, it means like this. You love your wife, you love your husband, you love your boyfriend, girlfriend, children, with a lot of intensity. So Krishna is saying, is a kind of a face of the absolute that says that you could have the same kind of intensity for me. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? The same kind of... That kind of a possessiveness, almost, of the absolute. So this is the face of the absolute opening himself to, to that who's interested in such a, a um, well, it's it's a, it's kind of a, it's an astonishing idea that such, such possibility would would uh, the great infinite, the unknown, the the Brahman, the great all pervasive, to know on in, intimate intimate terms. So anyway, the policeman said, it's, it's a problem that our God is a thief. And the other guy said, no, that's not a problem. That's a good thing. Hmm? He said, why is that? He said, because the thief does not care for high walls or locked doors. And the other guy goes, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> that's the problem. He says, no, no, no. But he said, the only really high walls and locked doors that we've God are those that we've erected around our heart. Mm. We're all protecting our heart. Just like even when we come to a gathering like this, then we may protect our heart to some extent. Listen with our brain. What what will that allow to go in? And what we'll not? We're not sure. And if he can speak well enough or she can speak well enough with enough feeling, with enough heart, with enough realization and compassion, then you can stop thinking. Okay? And everything can go in, and you won't remember anything, but it will feel good. <laughs> you still go away with something. It's not in the words. You know, I, what is that she used to say? That um, I tried to say, I love you, but the words got in the way. Something, an old song mm-hmm. just came to my mind. I've been around for a while. So, <laughs> so he said, We've erected high walls and locked door around our heart. We're protecting this, but we just don't want to give it just anywhere, right? And we've been hurt before. You know, there's another one that said, only love can break your heart. So try to be sure, right from the start. But, Neil Young. So... So we're protecting that, and that's us. We are our heart. 
And whatever, de- unfortunately, whatever desires are in our heart, that we, we become, and attachments that we become. But that only clutters what we really are, because we are, as a heart, if you will, a, a giver in potential, more than a thinker. We can think how to give, that's a good use of reasoning. We can use our head to soften our heart, that would be good. So he said, anyway, so, but the thief, you see, doesn't care for high walls and locked doors. So Krishna, in the form of his name, or through persons who, who have some, some, some affection for him and this idea, they speak about that. And that goes into the heart, regardless of how well we've locked it and sealed it. And, and we may know it later sometime, even in a distant lifetime. It'll all come to bear. And this kind of outreach, compassionate outreach of the Absolute, through, through I mean, a person who goes to the land of faith, beyond doubt, then returns from, from, from within to without, from to you know, go within or go without. So to go within and come without, you bring something. But what you've got, the goods you've got, what little bit of that? What, how can you, how can you teach music to deaf people? It's a problem. This is something that, that is beyond language and thought. But you can. But if you have it, to what extent? It's a little contagious, nonetheless. You can try to talk about it, <laughs> say something about it, and 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 in the context of that, experience it more yourself. And it's it just shares itself, it goes out, it reaches, regardless, as I say, of how locked up our hearts may be or how high of wall we've erected around them. So this kind of sangha, sadhu sangha, is very valuable. Hmm? And this is built in to human life. Some There are some amongst us like this. I was fortunate to get such company in my life, good company. And I can tell you there's nothing that more no more valuable moment in my life than that. That kind of sangha with my guru. So valuable. It may be misunderstood, it may be rare in one sense, but again, human life is this, this, this just budding, this, this interest in why and, and, and loving and and coming to sacrifice and so forth, and and uh, we are all evolving, so to speak, in this regard at different stages. And at a certain point, we 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 are met with the outreach of the absolute in a prominent way. It changes the course of our life, and then in keeping in contact with that, that outreach of the absolute. Then you know, and if you associate with with someone, then you become like them. After a while, you know, one extent or another. So by sadhu sangha, then you, you take up the habits of the sadhus. You become interested in yoga, and maybe even in, in yoga in it for, in it for a deeper reason than what you started, and better understanding of that. And you start to take up some of the habits and uh, characteristics and, and so forth of such um, people, yogins, realized people who have real... Um, Feeling for us, you see, you know, no, uh, no difference. This is the most prominent outreach of the absolute that comes to answer the need and the question of human society, which again is not 
how to eat, sleep, mate, or defend, but why am I? What I could be? I have a sense that I could be more than it appears that I am. I could do more, I could be more. I, and to answer that, this is all you can be in yoga is that about, you know, they say join the army and be all that you can be. <laughs> well, we say, <laughs> Krishna says you're in the Gita, he says, he says, uh, what does he say? He says some nice things. Anyway, he says, I was going <laughs> to quote, quote a verse in the beginning and now I'm at the end of the talk, so I'll quote a different verse. He says, uh, well, I'll, I'll read it to you. I'll find it. It's right here at the end of the chapter. Six, he says. Very nice statement. He says, mm. he says, um, the yogi is superior to the ascetic, superior to the gyan. He's talking about bhakti here. Superior to the ritualist as well. Therefore, Arjun be a yogi. He, he wants to say that the best of all things is to be a yogi. The best thing you can be. Hmm? It's a pretty interesting idea. And then we get to play out the ramifications of that. He goes into the next six chapters and tries to give some idea what that could possibly mean in its furthest reach. Hmm? I mean, just to give you some idea about it, in its furthest reach, it, it makes compassion for the suffering of others seem like a small thing, and it's a huge thing. How high is how high you can go in yoga? In yoga, that will just be absolutely second second nature, just without thinking about, it, without without trying. Uh, so that we come to the other things like rasa, anandam. A little ananda, just a little ananda, it will drown you. And rasananda, that is a whole lecture or discussion. Yeah. So I'd like to just stop there. I won't take too much of your precious time, but if you have any questions, I'll try to answer them. Any question at all about anything? Can't guarantee I can do the answer, but I'll try. Yes? In the Bhagavad Gita, um, I'll try to phrase this. Put this thoughts together. Um, Krishna's saying he's using the word surrender in different ways, and also Arjuna, when he comes to the point where his mind is completely overwhelmed and is bewildered, so what do I do here? Mm-hmm. And he says, Now I am a soul surrendering unto you. He uses that word. Mm-hmm. Um, and another, when you mentioned mystical path, they say that there's love and there's fear. These are the two things that are in the world. So, um, my question is, what is it that we're afraid of? If there's love, why don't we go toward the love? What do we fear that prevents us? Well, I, there's no good reason if you're looking for one. <laughs> you see, but we are, unfortunately, victims of, 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 of poor reasoning. And what I mean by that is that while humans are rational animals, we're also animals in, in, in terms of our humanness. So there's a sensual side to us that's very powerful, right? And, it, and um, we have, for example, six senses for perceiving and they, they, for tasting, for smelling, for, for seeing, forms, for hearing sounds, for touching, and so forth. And they're all 
and there are objects that correspond with them, and we are all being drawn by them. Hmm? And so to the extent that we're being drawn from them, it's difficult to reason well. That's why when, even by force of circumstance, like, let's say, a bad economy, then we can't buy as much or go out and do as much and taste as much and smell as much and hear as much. We have to think more, right? So the, the more that our senses, so to speak, are tamed or that, that energy of reaching out to touch and feel and taste and things is, is restricted, if you will, controlled, withdrawn, the more this reasoning faculty starts to come to bear. Let's say you get thrown in a, in a, in a, in a prison or something like that. What do you have to do? You have to think about it. And the only way you can get any relief is by thinking. You've got to think philosophically. Anyway, quality of life doesn't necessarily change for a yogin, <laughs> no matter where I am. And then you practice, even in jail or whatever may be the case. So, so even if, uh, if without involuntarily you're, you're put in a a situation of austerity or sensual restraint. It automatically activates another aspect of your being, your thinking and reasoning capacity, and perhaps more. Just like if you're blind, then you can taste better or hear better. Hmm? So many wonderful uh, blind musicians, they couldn't see, but boy, they could hear. Hmm? Ray Charles and uh, Stevie Bunder, good ex- examples. Right? So be drawn as we are by our sensual impulses and we are possessed of bad reasoning to the extent that often reasoning which is is built into our human condition to help us draw away from animality to rein in the senses and the mind and control them rather than have us be controlled by them and drawn here to feel and there to see and here to smell, and it's kind of disconcerting <laughs> to be drawn in six or so different directions at the same time. So, unfortunately, sometimes this draw of the senses is so powerful in the mind that that it it corrupts the intelligence, and then intelligence becomes an aid to assist us in sensual pursuit. That's when humans really become dangerous, the most dangerous animals. So there is bad reasoning that holds us back. Of course, you're a spiritual practitioner, so you're speaking about it perhaps a little bit differently. Why, even though you try to control your mind and senses and do spiritual discipline and so forth, what holds you back from from something that you know, at least intellectually, that appears to be an outreach of love to you? What 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 makes you afraid? Of loving, I, I think that uh, another way to talk about it is that, as I said, we are a heart, so to speak, or a unit of giving capacity. So we're always giving ourselves. That's what we do to one thing or another, and and we're we've been consistently for a long time. I mean, lifetimes, giving ourselves in a place where we're not getting the fulfillment. We're not getting the kind of reciprocation that uh, that. Um, corresponds with our capacity to give. So we become a little, you know, what is it, burnt? Jaded? Burnt once, shy twice, or shy. How's it go? Once bitten, twice, shy. Yeah, you go. Once burnt, twice, cautious. <laughs> Something like that. So, a thousand times burnt. <laughs> so cautious that even God comes to you and says, 
love me. Well, I'm not sure about that. I <laughs> have <laughs> about a thousand pages of philosophy and a couple of lifetimes of maybe partly practicing and testing the waters and so forth. So the, me- the, na- the measure of our conditioning, materially speaking, is immense. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's like a mountain of... I mean, we're like a, you know, like a diamond, but it's like a mountain of coal or something that's covering us. So it's, it's, an, it's not an easy thing. Therefore, we could, this good company is encouraging. It gives us some hope. If we see other people who make progress in this. It gives us hope. It's encouraging. That's probably the one thing we can do to help ourselves to, have that, to, to try to get that kind of company. Most valuable. Yeah, you know, and that good company only puts in words what we already feel, right? That's why you nod your head. <laughs> That's not my, you know, I'm not, it's just, it's all us. Knowledge is, belongs to everybody, right? <laughs> We're just, just talking about it. And it wouldn't be talked about if you weren't here, so you know, it's a cooperative affair. So, it's, it's, it, this is the answer to your question. It's, you know, the conditioning is, is huge. And, at the same time, we, we don't feel it so great. We feel it. Like we could just reach out, she'd be right there. Because we're used to, especially in our country, a credit card economy, we could just buy it if we wanted. You know, so why can't I buy love of God and perfection? <laughs> We've got a house. Uh, whatever. But it doesn't work like that. It's not a cheap thing. It's so valuable. It's so wealthy. It's so, so, so oh, I don't want to say rich, but it's, it's wealth, real wealth. This is... And you should, I told like the last night, you come, give money, and I'll burn it. Then you think, like, you work hard, give money for the, and I'll burn it in front of you. Then what will you think? I gave all money to that sadhu to do something good, and he just burned it. That's <laughs> <laughs> good for you if you can understand that lesson for that. It means nothing. It's nothing. All the wealth of the world is nothing to us. Of course, we could use it to print books and other things, but. I should burn a pile sometime. That would be good, yeah. useful. So again, you know, we, 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 it's like trying to teach music to deaf people. We're, we're speaking a really different language here. We, we're asserting ourselves, trying to enjoy the environment, exploit the environment. We have to, because we've identified with a, with a with a sense of self that's needy. You have to work, or otherwise you don't eat. If I think I'm I'm a, whatever, Portlander or Oregonian, you know, then I've got to to pay my property taxes, and they're high because the sales tax is, you know, low or whatever. (laughs) To to, to live as an Oregonian, you've got to take. You've got to go, and there's only so much to take out there, so it's competitive, and there's the hunters and the hunted. We're both. Depends which way you look at us. So to maintain this sense of self, we have to take. And we're possessed of taking. Love is about giving. So it's like, you know, it sounds good, and I have a sense about it, and I've tried it a little bit, but, but completely? Yeah. <laughs> Give everything? <laughs> Surrender? Yeah, you know, this, and it's a good word, because that's all we can do. Just hold the white flag. You don't stand a chance. <laughs> There's no hope whatsoever that this sense of self will endure some way, or some way you'll escape, you know death and old age or something, you know, it's just not possible. Hmm? So, so it's a good word, you just hold up a flag, and you, always, you know, it's a tiny, finite, against the infinite kind of 
to assert oneself and establish one's own, my property, my house, my kingdom, my, my rule. It's, it's, from the point of view of the absolute, it's just absolutely, well, it's amusing at best. <laughs> Pathetic. <laughs> Pathetic. There's no fight here. You know, you're, just, you're, fighting, you're just fighting with yourself. So surrender, it's, it's a good kind of term in, 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 in a sense. Because we are fighting. Darwin said it well, you know, we are struggling to exist. One, in the Bhagavad it says, Jivo Jiva Sajivanam. One living being is food for another in this plane. So we have to kill to live, but if we want to really live, we should die to live. Die to the killing tendency or the taking tendency that our present life is all about. That egoic sense of self that has to take, assert itself that has to die to kill that. So it all sounds like beautiful. Die to live is kind of poetic. It's a Hegelian term. Die to live. I know a guy put it on his license plate and people used to stop and think, what does it mean? Die to live. It sounds nice, it's poetic, but it's a hard pill to swallow to put into practice. And so we're attracted. You know, I can sit in here and talk in a flowery way about the nature of enlightenment and, and Everyone will like it, probably be fairly charming. So, but then the more I start to talk about how to get there, people have something else to do. <laughs> you know, the rose has thorns around it, something like that. Uh, so, but that really, the, the, that the thorn, if you will, or the, the difficulty, it's all coming from our side. It's not coming from that side. And we ask a question like that sometimes as if to say, maybe it's not there. If it's so hard, maybe I shouldn't surrender. It's, it sounds, but it, I have to try to do it. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it's, you know, a false promise. What do you think? You know, you know, so this is, no, it's not like that. It's in us. Lacking is in us only. And that just takes a little honesty and introspection. I mean, you know, you want to be perfectly happy. How close are you to that? So you think about it. How close are you? I mean, perfectly happy. <laughs> you can't. You can even measure it so far. You know, <laughs> you know just tears and and joy and the hair standing on end and uh, at every minute. You know. We're, so if we assess the reality of the situation, we know. Well, it's not. I might have. There's a shortcoming. There's a lacking in me on my side. There's not a shortcoming on that side. One of my, the guru of my guru once he said. He was publishing a magazine in Indian Bengal every every day, a daily paper. It's called Nadia Prakash, the light of Nadia, which is a holy place. And so uh, a fellow in the in the business world said, you know, "How can you guys publish a magazine like that every day about God?" It's like, you know. And so he replied. He said, "Well, in every major city, there's one or two papers, and about news of the mundane world." Now there's, you know, they're all going broke, but, you know, news is still out there, right, in the Internet and so forth. So much news, so much news. He said, and this is just the finite realm. So he said, there's, what about the infinite? There's so much to say. The only problem is, well, see, he said, we could publish a magazine every minute, but the problem is there's no customers. <laughs> <laughs> there's not, not enough interest. So it's a good company that will help us to develop interest and confidence that's, that's um, such things is, is uh, such things possible.
perfection of yoga is possible. Another question? Yes. I kind of have this feeling that like we're in this moment in time that we're kind of moving in the direction where maybe there would be more interest in buying that daily newspaper, minute newspaper. And like a sense of like, not only within this country, but I guess my most personal experiences with this country, but that there's a growing awareness that we want more out of our lives. And people, maybe it was the economy recently, or maybe it was other things, but like that people are just becoming a little bit more in tune with, you know, our hearts. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you feel that that's kind of an era that we're moving into as well, or maybe it's just because I hang out with some of the people that are like that. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that that's... that's, that's, that's it does largely comes oftentimes from the company that we keep and those are the people we talk to and associate with and they think like that and so then you start and 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 you also start to read the world the way you feel and um and you you start to see good in others that maybe they're potentially and it's not there as much as you you think and so forth that happens that one thinks the others to be like themselves Hmm. Often, it's, so it's it's a common kind of phenomenon um, in human society. At the same time, and it's encouraging you to, for one to think like that. So someone might encourage you to think like that because other people are, you know, herd animals. So if everybody else is going to go for it, <laughs> I will too. Or you know, it's nice to go in a group. Uh, but I would caution all of us as well at the same time, not to wait for anybody else. Don't wait for anybody else. And that spirit in you, if it comes in you, that will be the, the, the most that you or anyone can do to cause others to go there, to, to generate that, to, to foster that kind of thinking. If you wait for everyone else to go, you'll be lost. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, I'm just saying hypothetically. So, you know, these things, they come to us, we, we come to talks like this and we think about these things ourselves and so forth, they strike us in a particular way and this is significant, we should do something about it and we have to follow up on that, you know, it's, it's a kind of a calling, if you, if you will. And that will, in answering to that oneself, that will, as I say, foster the kind of thing that you sense might be going on, so maybe, you know, maybe it is. As much as you're going in that direction, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's happening. You know, there's a lot of. There, it is true also that when there are, as I mentioned earlier, when there are material crises, um, even beyond our choice or control at the economy. I guess we chose to take loans. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of people did, but uh, you know, whose fault at all is? You can't sort out. But at any rate, they're difficult times, so people may be more inclined to gather together and think about values that are deeper than the ones they pursued before now that they don't have credit cards to buy them, you know, that may be the case. So there are things that come in time that affect the populace at, at large, negative 
things from one perspective that bring about a positive result from another from a spiritual perspective and and in a sense it's we're in a, in a time like that so I think there's some some truth to that as well and um, you know we're a lot more connected with other people in, just in a material sense too than about them and so forth and that's kind of good you see the commonality of one another and, and uh, the basic humanness that we all share that, and so forth so it breaks down differences but I, I would caution that 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 kind of thinking is good and may be a little wishful in a, in a sense, and it's okay to be wishful, uh, but not to the point that that's all you do is wish about it. And and I think that that just for a moment, if I if I mind about yoga, that it's very important to do spiritual discipline, sadhana, spiritual practice, sit or whatever. Kirtan and uh, this is very important. Um, this is uh, you know, philanthropic activity and caring about other people and so forth is good, but it won't make you enlightened in and of itself. It may soften your heart, and then you may move in the direction of of enlightenment, but in and of itself, it's not going to necessarily still the mind and turn you within and awaken the, the self. There are really well thought out practices that are designed specifically for that. We shouldn't avoid them in the name of philanthropy. And now that we should be hard hearted as a result of spiritual practice and think, well, it's their tough karma. Too bad for those people. These are two kind of erroneous uh, directions that people go sometimes in relation to the spiritual path. The yoga fellow's in the monastery and he's practicing seriously and and so forth, and um, you know, it can foster some pride also, it's possible. The heart becomes hard, he thinks other people are suffering, that's their karma. And uh, yoga's about softening the heart, really. Another person is thinking, is in the monster, thinks all the people in the world are suffering, how can I sit here and, like with my eyes closed? And, you know, how can I sit here like this? The people are suffering, I have to do something for them. So that person leaves the monster. That's maybe the right thing for that person to do, but that person shouldn't delude him or herself in thinking that just by going and feeding the poor, poor people, they're going to get the same result as doing yoga. It won't be the same result. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But you can feed people all day, and hunger will never go away. But you can practice yoga and end hunger. You can become self-realized, and you can end all desire, and you can be an example for others. Teach them also to end all desire. Do you understand? And I don't say it's bad to feed people. It's good. <laughs> and who's really organ has natural compassion for humanity and their plight at the same time knows the measure of the plight and therefore knows the solution is self-realization, not philanthropy or altruistic activities on a material plane. As I say, you can feed as many people as you want. And, they, and there are a lot of hungry people, and we should feel for them. But it will never end hunger. Yoga has the power to end hunger. That's extraordinary. It, 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 has, it seeks to go to the root of the whole material predicament, all material suffering, and uproot it. It's all a, a, a question of misidentification, illusion of what, what is myself. When you can see and experience the self, and you have no need, then you can really give. 
course, not everybody's going to want to listen. But some nice people come ready to listen. Should I leave that and go to open a soup kitchen? That's a good thing too. But some people need this food and are in a position to, to make a comp comprehensive solution to the problem of life and share that with others. So a word about spiritual discipline that's important. It's not, you know, and it's seen sometimes as a running away from the world and being callous and, and so forth. Well, what do we do? You know, let's pass the hat, you know. There's hungry people. Everybody gives something. So we pass the hat around and it comes to you and you say, I'm not giving. And you say, well, wow, a bad person. <laughs> Why not? And you say, well, because the reason people are hungry is because the mayor of Portland is eating too much. And I want a different mayor. I want to solve the problem politically. I want to give all my money to change the political system. And we go, wow, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. Then on a bigger scale, we're trying to go deeper and solve the problem, right? Pass the hat again. Everybody gives to the new mayor. Then we come to you, and you won't give to the mayor. Well, it's another mean person, so it appears at first. Then you tell us, no, the problem is not the mayor. The problem is not the president. The problem is, is, is that we think we're Americans. What are you talking about? Or whatever. No, we're not. We're actually... Consciousness, enlightenment along those lines. And then we think, wow, let's put all the money in that hat. Yeah, that is going to solve the whole problem. Exactly. People will still think we're hard-hearted because they're not in a position to, 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 try to begin in a systematic way, as yoga affords us, to make a comprehensive solution of the problem. We should care about them. The overflow of our real spiritual development should be in the form of material compassion. I had a godbrother of mine, a person initiated by the same guru and he was in in, uh, in India with our Guru Dave a long time ago and, and uh, a lot of poor people in India and uh, and uh, there was uh, they were standing on the balcony of the building and there was some beggars down below and so had uh, like a no hand and other crippled person and they were begging and so he said to my guru, he said, you know, um, Guru Dave, sometimes I sometimes I feel sorry for these people. And sometimes the teaching seems like, well, don't worry about those people. Practice yoga. That's their karma, you know. And sometimes it's framed like that. And so, as I said earlier, in the context of spiritual practice, sometimes people can get a bit of a hard heart. So he says to our Gurudev, you know, sometimes I feel sorry for them. And Prabhupada turned to him and said, why only sometimes? So it really shocked him. But uh, if we are actually making progress in spiritual life, there will be a caring about people and there will be a capacity that comes from that to care about them on a deep level and, and make a solution to their problem. And a lot of that is invisible too. So, what can we do? Have faith, get some experience, we can know. So don't, don't, don't avoid that. Mm, Got to go kind of to the heart. Of compassion, which the, you know, if you save the dress of a drowning person, <laughs> that's not a very good idea, <laughs> right? So, people have material needs. That's a fact, and it's a, and some of them are more needy than ourselves. We should we should care about them and try to help them, but not in a way that that takes us outside of the context of doing something that feeding ourselves our our real need, which in turn will feed and nourish them on a deeper level as well. You follow? Yes. It's an important point.
actually. Everybody wants to be a bodhisattva because they really don't want to live in ashram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay too. You know, I mean, you don't have to live in an ashram, but it is nice. <laughs> so, anything else? Yeah, let's see. he's hungry. You see. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening and your time. <laughs>